0: 99% Invisible is brought to you by the Lexus GX and Sirius XM. As a 99PI listener, we know that you delight in exploring regional architecture wherever you go. If you're looking for an adventure SUV that promises both luxury and capability, the new Lexus GX is just the vehicle you've been looking for. Enabled with Sirius XM, the 2024 GX comes equipped with a rich array of content you can enjoy on your next road trip. In true 99PI fashion, get in a GX today and experience how great design marries form and function. To learn more about the GX and Sirius XM and Lexus vehicles, visit Lexus.com GX and SiriusXM.com Lexus. Lexus Trial. The all-new Lexus GX. Live up to it. Kohler smart toilets combine sculptural design with intuitive technology to deliver a new standard of clean and comfort. You can personalize every element of this fancy toilet, from the integrated warm water cleansing to the heated seat and warm air dryer. A touchless lid, seat, and flush deliver convenience, while the self-sanitizing bidet one offers peace of mind. I have uh, one of these fancy robot toilets in my house, and I'm telling you, it is the greatest thing I've ever purchased. I love it every single day. Explore the complete lineup at Kohler.com slash smart toilets and discover what you've been missing. Robert Half Research indicates that 9 out of 10 hiring managers are having difficulty hiring. If you have open roles, chances are you're feeling this too. That's why you need Robert Half. Their specialized recruiting professionals engage with their proprietary AI to connect businesses of all sizes with highly skilled talent in finance and accounting, technology, marketing and creative, legal, and administrative and customer support. At Robert Half, they know talent. Visit RobertHalf.com today. This is 99% Invisible. I'm Roman Mars. For the most part, we take time for granted. Maybe we don't have enough of it, but at least we know how it works. At least, you know, most of the time. A lot of what we think about time and and how we keep track of it is relatively recent, and some aspects that we take for granted aren't actually all that universal. And today, we're going to be talking to a few of my 99PI colleagues for a set of mini stories about our evolving relationship with time. And to get us started, it's Kurt Colstead, the co-author of The 99% Invisible City. And in our
1: book, we wrote about the standardization of time that came with the rise of railroads. Right. And before standard times rail companies had to juggle all of these city-specific time zones. But there's one really neat artifact in particular from that period, which really brings the point home. So here's this old ornate clock that hangs on the facade of the Bristol Corn Exchange building in England. So this is a a lovely clock with red letters and
0: red hands, except for there seems to be kind of what looks like a long black you know, almost like a second hand potentially, but, you know, I I can't quite make sense of what it's for.
1: Yeah, yeah, one could definitely think that's the second hand, but it's actually a second minute hand. (laughs) So there are two (laughs) different minute hands and they're set about 10 minutes apart from each other. And they're painted those different colors so that, you know, people on the streets below can tell them apart. So does this second minute hand also have to do with trains? absolutely. So they have this one hand that's for Bristol. And then when train travel started becoming more commonplace, they added a second minute hand to show London time. And that's the one that's colored black. Got it. So one hand is for locals; so they're still on the local time. The other is for people traveling in and out
0: of the city. And presumably, that the local time is based on high noon, when the, when the sun is highest in the sky. That's that's yeah. what we talk about in the book. How did they get this London time that
1: that's showed here in this picture, about ten minutes off? Right. So that's the crazy part. Apparently, they actually sent people out from London on trains with these precisely tuned watches. And so that way they could keep clocks like this one up to date on London time. (laughs) So so the railroad used the train network to keep track of time. Yeah, it's sort of this weird meta phenomenon. And so you have these dedicated timekeepers who would arrive in a given town and then they'd hop off the train and they'd go show their watch to the station master because the local railroad operators needed to know the precise time in London. And then those same watch-wearing travelers would hop onto another train to a different city and so on and so forth. And they'd go about basically updating clocks all across the country, one station at a time. That is wild. Imagine all these people
0: riding around just to <laughs> set clocks. <laughs> like like everyone's like a cog in their
1: own clock.
0: Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's great. <laughs> They're just parts of a machine. <laughs> That's hilarious.
1: Yeah, I love it. I love it so much. And, and it's so hard for us you know, today to wrap our minds around the way it was, but but it really like up until that point, local time was just the time. And so that's mm-hmm. just how people went about their days. And a lot of folks were pretty reluctant to get on board with these newfangled ideas like standard time.
0: So really this like three-handed clock is a relic of that
1: brief moment in time
0: between the old and new, when there was an acceptance that standard time was kind of required in some ways, but local time was still preferred, and, and you were just like in this weird
1: interregnum where both of those things were you know equally dominant. Yeah, that's exactly it. And what struck me in writing about this transition is that railroads really effectively collapsed both space and time. And what do I mean by that? Well, <laughs> they made longer journeys go faster, right? but they also compressed the world into these fewer number of time zones so that suddenly you don't have hundreds of time zones for every city. You just have, you know, two dozen spanning the globe. And meanwhile, local time was this really big headache and increasingly a safety hazard for railway operators because Mm -hmm. if they got it wrong, even by a few minutes, trains could literally crash into each other. And of course, eventually there were global agreements around time and, you know, things became standardized. But I'm really fond of these Quirky exceptions and these little remnants of that interstitial period, like this clock in Bristol. So what
0: follows is a bunch of stories about the struggle of us all being on the same time together. Who gets left behind? What individuality gets squashed when everyone tries to sync up and all be at the same place at the same time? So for our next Time story, we're going to be talking to 99PI producer Joe Rosenberg. Hey, Joe. Hey, Roman. So what do you have for us?
2: Um, So for this story, we're basically going to start where Kurt left us off, this kind of moment of transition when it comes to timekeeping in Britain.
0: Yeah, like the rise of the, the regimented London time.
2: Yeah, exactly. And everyone running around with watches being like, this is the time. This is it. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Like, I know the time. You don't. Get with the program. This
2: is the time. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Um, Because it turns out that there's this one very specific profession from around that period, uh, the middle of the 19th century, that's a variation on that phenomenon. And out of like all of the whimsical, quirky jobs that have ever existed in human history— It's now my favorite. (laughs) Okay. What is it? Well, I want you to imagine that you are a factory worker in, say, like Manchester in the 1860s. Okay. And maybe you've moved to the city from the countryside where you were used to just getting up with the sun. Uh, You worked when it was light. You didn't when it was dark. It's pretty simple. But now you have to get up before it's even light because your shift at the local cotton mill starts at like 2 a.m. sharp. Hmm. Yeah. So the question is, how do you do this? How do you wake up?
0: I'm assuming there's no alarm clocks at this point. There's probably not even widespread watches for this class of people necessarily.
2: Yeah, no alarm clocks and the watches we'll get to. Okay. Those things, yeah, they're not cheap or widespread at the very least. So instead, the solution is that you would rely on a kind of human alarm clock by hiring a knocker-upper. A knocker-upper.
3: It sounds faintly... um. Rude, really, doesn't it? Out of context. (laughs) But it wasn't. It was a proper job title, A Knocker Upper.
2: So this is Ruth Goodman. She is a UK historian and TV presenter and the author of the books How to Be a Victorian and The Domestic Revolution. Uh, Her specialty is everyday life in historical periods. And she says a knocker upper was someone with a good watch, meaning back then an accurate watch, who would be paid a small fee by various individual residents of a working class area to wake each of them up at a particular time, depending on when their shift
3: started. But naturally, you can't have somebody banging on the door at two o'clock in the morning saying, wakey, 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 loud enough to wake all the neighbors.
2: And so the way the knocker-upper would do it is they would go around with this really long, fine cane and just reach up to the upper floors of buildings and lightly tap on their customers' window panes until they woke up. (laughs)
0: I can see why this is your favorite job in history. <laughs> this is so delightful. I love it.
2: Yeah. I mean, it's like Dickensian, but it but like nice, you know? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and so they would just slowly go around to one address at perhaps 4.05 a.m., uh, tap on the upper left window, then move on to the next house at 4.10 a.m., tap on the lower right window, and just go down their list. And always aiming, of course, to tap very gently but not too gently.
3: Some knocker uppers swore blind that you needed a particular, you know, bit of something on the end of the cane to get the right amount of noise that would wake people up in the room, but not wake people up next door. And that way, if they wanted to wake up call cool, they'd also have to pay you. <laughs> There's no point having one paying customer in the street and the whole street getting the benefit.
2: Um, and so here, let me show you a photo of a knocker upper applying their trade.
0: Oh, this is great. So this is long- row of houses, connected houses, row houses, and a person on the street with a cane that looks like, I don't know, maybe 15 feet long or something like that. Like really something. Um.
2: Yeah. Yeah. No, it's a (laughs) solid, somewhere between 15 and 20 feet long, this (laughs) giant cane, just to reach up to that second floor. And you can see he's just going down this kind of classic London row house, Mm -hmm. um, tapping on each window.
0: That's so great. So I I see why you need to use the cane for for the second floor what do they do for the first floor that seems kind of unnecessary you'd be like in the middle of the street trying to reach with that thing
2: yeah so there was a few different knocking up methods the cane was just one depending on where your customers were and what the lay of the land was Mm -hmm. so some people had like a mallet for ground floor doors Mm -hmm. others in like company towns might be hired by a mining company to very deliberately wake up everyone at the same time Mm -hmm. and apparently those knocker uppers since the whole point was to be as loud as possible uh, use like one of those wooden clackers that you would see at soccer matches. Do you know what I'm talking mm-hmm. about? Yeah, yeah, I do, actually. Um, but most knocker uppers, uh, like Ruth said, uh, found ways to be a little more precise.
3: One very famous uh, knocker upper, she used a pea shooter. And she, she had a little that hollow tube and she would <laughs> blow dried peas at the window.
2: <laughs> oh, wow. Well, do, do we know who that person is? We actually do. Um, That apparently was Mary Ann Smith of East London. And there's also a really charming photo of her. Let me show you that one, too.
0: Oh, my God. This is so great. So she's just there with her pea shooter, her hands in her cardigan, which I'm assuming holds the pebbles or peas that she is shooting. (laughs) Yeah, her cheeks are like puffed Puffed out. out. Exactly, yeah. Like she's in mid pea shoot. That's so good. Oh, it's so good. Yeah. Yeah. It's really fascinating the way official regimented time is just kind of proliferating and it hasn't quite reached into the bedroom of the working class, but it's reached just as far as their window.
2: Yeah. And uh, in addition to it kind of spreading practically, it was also spreading culturally in the 19th century. People were getting really into being very precise about what time it was. Ruth says it was just seen as the modern, forward-thinking thing to do. And she says Mm. one fun example in her own research where she could kind of see this playing out is actually uh, the Jack the Ripper case.
3: Going through all those police reports was extraordinary because there they are at the end of the 19th century saying at 916, and I'm thinking, 916? That's ridiculously accurate. You know, and then they're saying, like, six minutes later, this happened, and 14 minutes later, that happened. There is no way a watch from that era could possibly be giving you quite that accuracy. And the people who were making these statements weren't even carrying watches.
2: So the reports of Jack the Ripper, they're just making it up? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Like, he just heard the church bells ring maybe a quarter of an hour ago, and he's just, like, winging it.
3: But he doesn't choose a nice round number. He chooses a very precise number because it lends authority to his statement. So the idea that you could be that precise was culturally enticing, but not actually practically possible.
0: Yeah, if you want to give legitimacy to your testimony, make it really precise. It totally makes sense, but it's
2: really funny. You know, yeah, it really is. And and so, of course, in this kind of cultural environment where you would rather lie than be caught not knowing the exact time,
3: uh, pocket watches are like really coveted items. It was the, the must-have bling, you know, techno bling. But they were pricey. So from about the 1860s, you start to see little businesses setting up with people who have got some sort of timepiece giving time information
2: to other people. And so this is when the knocker-upper business is really in its heyday, um, where every urban working-class neighborhood had its own knocker-upper. And that person would invest in a good, accurate timepiece, almost like someone invested in a taxicab medallion. And then embark on this career and hope to pay that timepiece off and eventually start turning a profit
0: and was it considered a good career i mean i know that having a watch was a high status symbol but like was being a knocker upper a high status symbol job like could you make money at it
2: well i asked ruth about that and she told me you might charge each client maybe like six pence per week uh which of course meant nothing to me is that a lot i guess or is that within well is that reasonable yeah, I'm curious if that's like
3: a... I mean, yeah, it's, it's sort of reasonable. I mean, if you had 20 or 30 clients, then you could just about scrape some survival. So it is a, a profession of desperation. It's done by people who are really poor, particularly older women. Um, there seem to be been a lot of older female knocker-uppers.
2: And so it turns out people like Mary Ann Smith of East London were not the exception. Ruth says that when we think of the Victorian period... We like to think of the women as being strictly in the home. Uh, But the truth is, is that in the lower classes, the number of women earning an income doing heavy manual tasks, hauling bricks, breaking stone, shifting clay was huge.
3: So many of these women will have been physical laborers in their younger years. And now they've reached a point where they simply can't do that. The body won't take it anymore. And this sort of knocker-upper work is the sort of thing that somebody in that position would take.
2: And in some ways, this put them in an even more vulnerable position, as you might imagine, walking the streets of London's roughest neighbourhoods alone at night.
3: So it must have been quite a dangerous job, I would have thought, Um, particularly for an older woman, you'd have to be pretty tough. I mean, some of the pictures show some of these people who would take a dog with them, you know, personal Mm -hmm. security, and you can't say you blame them. Mm. Yeah. Another interesting group of people who did knocking up, however, completely different, and that's the police constables.
2: Oh, so they did like a little, a little side gig for, for the police constables? Yeah, exactly. So apparently most police constables um, did not have a watch, um, like we mentioned before, at least an accurate watch. But those that did, if they had a good watch and a night shift, this was something they could do for a little extra cash. Um, they could, yeah, just like moonlight as a knocker-upper. Um, and incredibly, you also see this in the
3: Ripper case. The very first victim, Mary Nichols, when the chap found her, he went to find a constable. He found a constable and he told him he found this body and the constable was too busy knocking up. He carried on knocking up. He didn't come and see the body immediately. He had clients <laughs> waiting.
0: <laughs> Time is money. You got to you gotta get your knocker upper job, but the body can wait.
2: <laughs> oh yeah, the body can totally wait. Um, but you know, I still like to believe that if only he had not been knocking up we might know who Jack the Ripper
0: is. <laughs> the tyranny of time has sort of kept us from knowing Jack the Ripper. I mean, it's so interesting. I mean, the way all these people in these situations are kind of just beholden, you know, culturally and economically to this new form of timekeeping, you know, whether they had a way of measuring it or not.
2: Yeah, and like you said earlier, mechanized time wasn't yet in most people's bedrooms, but somehow here it was reaching out and almost literally tapping on their windows because they had to conform to it.
0: Like time was coming for them, whether they liked it or not.
2: Yeah. And of course, this technology eventually came for the knocker uppers too, once we no longer had any use for them. Mm -hmm. And I actually found an old article from the Guardian from 1914, where they interviewed an unnamed knocker upper describing the decline of the trade. And he says, London knocking up isn't what it was. At one time, I had 60 clients on my books. Now I've only 20, and I've bought up the businesses of three others. I expect I shall be the last of the knocker-uppers. What can you do when alarm clocks loud enough to summon a fire engine can be bought for half a crown? I've knocked up for 30 years and never broken a pane or wrapped on the wrong house, except one. And they let me get them up for a month before they told me. And he says that that family uh, never paid up.
0: Wow. So not only was it a hard job, it got, like, harder as the years went on. And he just was so polite, you know, like, so polite until the very end. The whole process seemed incredibly polite with this kind of light tapping on windows. It, it's sort of sad to see it go by the wayside for blaring alarms in our rooms.
2: Yeah, I mean, it almost makes me wish I could um, be woken up by a knocker up myself um, <laughs> instead of my, uh, my iPhone. Um, but, incredibly, some people kind of got this wish because— This guy was wrong about one thing. He wasn't the last. Uh, There are reports that the very, very last of the knocker uppers in the town of Bolton in northern England didn't retire until 1973. 1973? That's the year before I was born. (laughs) (laughs) You are a contemporary Roman of knocker uppers. (laughs) That is hilarious. So who was that last knocker upper? I have not been able to find that out. I don't know their gender or their clients, or their method. But I'm just really touched that this profession that started out as a kind of harbinger of the forces of change, uh, nevertheless turned into a tradition and in the process actually kind of became a timekeeping holdout. That is lovely.
0: Well, thank you so much, Joe. Thank you, Roman. Next is producer Vivian Lay. So ever since COVID started, nine uh, pi went all remote and the staff has kind of scattered across North America. And so now we have staffers in four time zones, which can be kind of a pain in the ass. But I guess the alternative would be worse. <laughs> 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 like if we were in one time zone, but, but actually 3,000 miles away. <laughs>
4: Yes, exactly, and that's a story that I have for you right now. <laughs> it's a story about uh, one time zone, a place with only one time zone, um, and how it's become intertwined with uh, like power and politics and freedom.
0: Wow. Okay. Well, this is dramatic. Let's let's hear it.
4: Yeah, like, so as you mentioned, very wide countries like the U.S. or Canada or Russia, uh, we have these multiple time zones to break up the day because, you know, otherwise the amount of daylight in a day would be unevenly distributed depending on how far east or how far west you are. Right. But there is a country with a very wide landmass that only uses one official time zone across the entire territory. And that's China.
0: Huh. One time zone across the entire country.
4: Yeah. And according to the Guinness Book of World Records, it's actually the largest country in the world with only one time zone.
0: <laughs> I mean, it's one of the largest countries in the world <laughs> in general. So, yes, like,
4: <laughs> <I guess> so.
0: <laughs> but, but, but how wide is China? Like, what, what are we working with here?
5: It's roughly as wide as the United States or Canada. And as astronomers in China have pointed out many times, it really, by all rights, ought to have five time zones, which generally go every 15 degrees.
4: So this is Gardner Bovington. He's an associate professor in the Departments of Central Eurasian Studies and International Studies at Indiana University.
0: Wow. Gardner Bovington? Next time (laughs) I check into a hotel (laughs) under a pseudonym, I'm going in as Gardner Bovington. That is such a good name.
4: (laughs) That's exactly what I said. Has anybody ever told you that you have, like, the perfect name for a podcast guest?
5: (laughs) Um, It has been mentioned before, so... Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> um, so if Gardner
0: is saying that China should actually encompass five different time zones, why does it operate with only one? And and has it always been like this?
4: No, it hasn't. And actually, timekeeping across the country was sort of all over the place until the end of World War II. Mm-hmm. And for a brief period of time, they actually did observe five time zones across the country. <laughs> um But that was all thrown out in 1949 after the establishment of the People's Republic of China. So the Communist Party had just won this long civil war. And leadership thought that having one national time on every clock across China was this very literal way to unite a fractured country.
5: A state has many challenges in trying to touch people in all the parts of the country, what we call the reach of the state. This was a quick, very efficient way to do it, to say there's one time And it's the time we're using for the entire country. And that time is called Beijing time.
4: Which means that when it's 9 a.m. in Beijing, it's 9 a.m. 2700 miles away in Kashgar.
5: Yeah. So One thing I'm
0: struck by is that if you look at a map, Beijing, that's the nation's capital where the national time is based. It's like all the way up in the sort of northeastern part of China. Um, And so, like, that leaves everyone... To the West, like really, like if it was centered, at least you would have something to work with, you know what I mean? But it's really in one extreme location. So how does people in the far West deal with a clock that doesn't match their solar day, like really at all?
4: Yeah, so Gardner is actually a scholar of Xinjiang, which is an autonomous territory in the northwest of China. It's really far west, and it's home to about 12 million Uyghurs who are an ethnic minority native to Xinjiang. Uh, They speak Uyghur and are Muslim, and they're very different culturally from the Han majority, which make up about 92 percent of the country. Mm -hmm. And for decades, the Chinese government has worried about separatism in the region, and it's led to pretty severe state-sponsored suppression of Uyghur life and to an ongoing genocide. I'll get more into this later.
0: Okay, okay. We'll put a it in that.
4: But I wanted to kind of rewind back to the 1990s, when Gardner first began traveling to Xinjiang.
5: My first trip to Xinjiang was in 1994.
4: He was doing field research in the region, and he realized that there were actually two separate time zones that existed in Xinjiang. There was Beijing time, which was the official national time, and this was used by the Han Chinese in the area. But then there was this totally different time that was used by the Uyghur population called Xinjiang time or local time.
5: It was only when I started to understand Uyghur that I heard
4: people using this expression for Xinjiang time in Uyghur.
5: And then I started thinking, wait a minute, why are they saying that? Then I started noticing that the time that they used, the numbers they used for time, were two hours off that of Beijing time.
4: So Beijing time was and still is the official time zone in Xinjiang. So things like train stations and government offices, they all run on Beijing's clock. Mm-hmm. Um, and. If you were to ask a Han person what time it was, they would tell you in Beijing time. But Gardner noticed that if a Uyghur person were asked what time it was, they would most likely respond with the, quote, local time, uh, which was two hours behind Beijing. And this was because it more closely followed the solar pattern of Xinjiang.
6: (laughs)
0: Wow, that is complicated, (laughs) at least from what Gardner observed back in the 90s. How did that work in everyday life?
4: Yeah. So take, for example, what we call noon. So like basically when the sun is at its highest point in the day. Okay. Um, if, if you were to ask someone who was Uyghur what time it was, they might say it was 12 p.m. But if you were to ask someone who was Han, they would probably tell you it was actually 2 p.m. <laughs>
0: okay. So for Han Chinese people in Xinjiang... Life is just lived two hours earlier than local time. Like, like, are they like waking up and going to work in the dark and just dealing with the inconvenience, you know, <laughs> and just to keep in step with Beijing to, to work Beijing hours?
4: I, I, yeah, I wondered that too, but no. Since I started out by
5: suggesting Beijing wanted to sort of extend its authority over the whole country and show that it was doing so, it might make sense for people to get up, right, um, to be ready at their work unit at eight or nine Beijing time and so on. Um, And that might have been so at one time, but my impression was in the 1990s and 2000s that that wasn't so, that even Hans who used Beijing time shifted two hours. Now, I was curious about this and I asked some people, so the convenience of one time zone is kind of defied by the fact that if a Beijing official calls at nine o'clock in the morning Beijing time, the person in the work unit in Urumqi is not going to be in the office, right? The person said, well, yeah, but that's understood. So Han people
0: actually lived by Xinjiang solar time, even though they use Beijing's clocks to communicate the time. Like, Mm -hmm,
4: mm -hmm. okay,
0: (laughs) so, you know, how much did these two time zones bump into each other? Because, I mean, it just sounds so confusing.
4: Yeah, I mean... Kind of. Um, So if you're a foreigner and you're meeting up with a local, you should probably specify which time they're using. Um, I was reading this account from a Han Chinese person who happened to be friends with a lot of Uyghurs. And he was annoyed because he would always show up like two hours early for everything. (laughs) But Gardner said that in most cases, it wasn't all that confusing because Uyghurs basically knew... Which clock to refer to by the language that they were speaking, or who they were speaking to. Like, if they were talking to a Uyghur family member or friend, uh, maybe they would say, "Hey, I'm leaving for work at 8 a.m." But if they were speaking Mandarin to a Han person, they automatically knew to say, "Hey, I'm leaving for work at 10 a.m."
0: I mean, that sounds just like classic code switching. But that you know, <laughs> you know, someone who is Uyghur would have to. Adjust their language depending on the culture of the person they were talking to, and they they would know to do it, and they would and it would be the onus would be on them to do it.
4: Yeah, exactly.
5: I didn't actually know the word code switching in 1994. Today, I think you're spot on. It's exactly right. So there are linguistic codes, right? When a bilingual Spanish English speaker speaks, she will use the Anglo version of names to convenience English speakers, and switch to the Spanish version of names in order not to be mocked by fellow Spanish speakers. And here we're talking about time codes, switching time codes. It is interesting to me that the time of day actually depended on
0: the ethnicity of who you were asking.
4: Yeah, yeah. Um, And and Gardner says that he thought that this was actually a political statement. You know, Mm. like, Even in the 1990s for Uyghurs, open dissent could be interpreted as a threat of separatism, Mm -hmm. uh, which could get you in a lot of trouble with the Chinese government. But by choosing to set your watch to local time instead of Beijing time, it felt like this quiet and private form of protest or solidarity.
5: People might not dare to be openly hostile, openly resistant, uh, openly demonstrate, and so forth. And so instead, they'll find little ways, possibly hidden or half-hidden, to express their defiance, and to show each other that they are defying the government. And so we could say that keeping one's daily schedule on Xinjiang time, and when pressed calling it Xinjiang time, and rejecting Beijing time, are all modes of everyday resistance.
7: Hmm.
0: That is so fascinating. And But, you know, given the intensity of, of the news coming out of Xinjiang now, like... How safe is it to use Xinjiang time presently? Like how how secret and yeah you know, can it, can you be yeah.
4: yeah yeah so as you noticed Gardner's observations of local time versus Beijing time mainly took place in the 1990s mm-hmm. and early 2000s. Basically, Gardner is part of a group that calls themselves the Xinjiang Thirteen. They're a group of scholars who have essentially been pretty much barred from entering China um, because of a scholarly work that they wrote about Xinjiang. So he hasn't actually been able to return to China since 2005. So that's why most of this comes from like the early 90s -hmm. or the mid 90s. Mm -hmm. Um, But over the past few years, the human rights crisis has escalated severely. Um, It's at the point where the U.S. has determined that what's happening to the Uyghurs in Xinjiang is genocide.
1: Mass internment of up to 2 million members of the mostly
7: Muslim ethnic minority group, the Uyghurs. Psychological torture. The U.S. and other countries have labeled China's treatment of Uyghurs as genocide.
4: That China may be expanding its so-called re-education camps. And among many other human rights violations, a large population of Uyghurs and other Muslim minorities have been detained in what have officially been called, you know, vocational education training centers, Mm -hmm. uh, but are effectively re-education camps. I mean, clearly they're camps,
8: which is a distinction between other schools or training centers or prisons as well in some ways. But it's very clear from people that have been in them, that have worked in them, that they are actually camps, that they're a prison space, a carceral space, really a medium security prison.
4: So this is Darren Byler. He's an anthropologist at Simon Fraser University, and he studies how ethnic minorities in northwest China are surveilled and policed. Hmm. Um, he's done a lot of field work in Xinjiang and was last there in two thousand and eighteen. And he says that, you know because of the pervasiveness of surveillance technology paired with smartphone use, using local time could actually be potentially dangerous.
8: I'm sure most people now have their phone set to Beijing time. Um, and you know most people expect to have their phone checked, to have it scanned, or in some cases, they're they're forced to install nanny apps on their phone, which will upload the data that's being collected on their phone. So most people are aware that everything on their phone is basically state property at this point.
4: And it's not that it's necessarily against the law to use local time, but Darren says that a Uyghur person could be, you know, putting themselves in a vulnerable position if they had their phone set to anything other than Beijing time.
8: So in the government documents or in documents that are you know, in circulation in the Chinese internet from Xinjiang They talk really directly about this issue. They say that you should look really carefully at people that are using local time. Um, They don't say outright that it's illegal necessarily in in most cases, Um, but it is certainly something that they're looking at as a sign of suspicion.
4: And there's a laundry list of things that can be interpreted as a, quote, sign of separatism, like wearing a headscarf, um, having a beard, having WhatsApp installed on your phone, or simply speaking to someone who lives abroad. Um, These are all things that have gotten people in trouble with the government. Um, And Darren even said that he noticed people having to self-censor themselves in all these private ways, like having to change the way that they greet each other over the phone so that they drop Islamic identifiers. Hmm. So time is just one example of how these you know, intimate parts of Uyghur culture are being suppressed.
8: It's a sign of them potentially being separatists, of being you know, more loyal to their own ethnicity, their own geographic location than the nation. Um, and so there's, a, there's definitely pressure on people to use Beijing time.
0: I mean, when you think about the history of the implementation of one time zone, you see it sort of presaging all this other form of suppression that has these differences yeah. that are perfectly capable of existing inside of one country. You know, like time zones can exist inside one country and it's it just kind of stunning that they once had five time zones and created one, you know, and now what that says about everything else.
4: Yeah, and Gardner Bovington from earlier in the piece said that, you know, even from the beginning, it was very clear who wasn't going to fit into a system built on Beijing time.
5: You design a system of timekeeping that's manifestly at odds with the local experience of the sun's transit through the sky, and so reminds people constantly, you are at the periphery, you're not in the center.
4: Gardner said something kind of interesting, which was like, The reason why it's set to Beijing time is because this is the capital. This is where the orders emanate. um, This is where you should be looking for for leadership. Um, But that really shows how little thought that they put into the people, you know, 3,000 miles away in the West. Like how how little consideration that it took to consider what their days might look like.
0: And how little consideration they had for the sun. Like it is telling to me that there's this Denial of reality that goes along with this denial of human rights. Like, yeah. it's not surprising to me that those two things go together. Yeah. So. Well, I got really intense there at the end. I, I thought we were just <laughs> going to talk about time zones. Well, that was incredibly fascinating. Thank you so much. Thank you. When we come back, Chris Berube on the surprisingly controversial issue of springing forward and falling back after this. When was the last time you had an oinks and giggles guarantee? Maybe you had a giggles guarantee, maybe you had an oinks guarantee, but oinks and giggles? That's reserved for one thing only the Peppa Pig Caravan Playset. If you're a parent, you're probably familiar with Peppa Pig, that delightful cartoon pig from the long-running children's series. Peppa inspires people of all ages to jump through life and its muddy puddles with enthusiasm. You can now bring Peppa into your home in physical form with a Peppa Pig caravan playset. Instead of just seeing her on the screen, your kids can take Peppa into the home, have some imaginative play, open-ended, creative. It's good for your brain. It's good for your soul. Peppa Pig, inspiring kid confidence since 2004. Peppa Pig is a trademark of Hasbro, created by Mark Baker and Neville Astley. If thinking about salsa and a variety of delicious flavors and heat levels makes your mouth water, you need to check out Green Mountain Gringo. With the medium salsa, you get hearty chunks of tomatoes, tomatillos, peppers, and onions in every scoop. The hot salsa brings flavorful heat to every meal with each bite containing jalapenos, serrano peppers, and other savory herbs. Plus, they've got a hot sauce with a tangy, spicy flavor that enhances the simplest of meals. We've been going through a really big cheese quesadilla phase in our house. I don't know why every kid wants one, so I cracked open the medium salsa to make everyone happy, and I'll save the hot one just for me. Visit greenmountaingringo.com and start shopping. Use the store locator to find Green Mountain Gringo products, get inspiration for recipes, and purchase products using promo code PODCAST24 for 20% off. That's promo code PODCAST24. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What's the first thing you'd do if you had an extra hour in your day? Would you go for a run? you take a nap? Read a book? A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. The question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and make it a priority. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com invisible today to get 10% off your first month. That's hel slash invisible. Invisible is sponsored by Squarespace. Squarespace is the all-in-one website platform for entrepreneurs to stand out and succeed online. With Squarespace, it's easy to create a beautiful website all on your terms. You don't want to miss Fluid Engine, a next-generation website design system from Squarespace with reimagined drag-and-drop technology for desktop and mobile. And with their new asset library, you're able to manage all your files from one central hub and use them across the Squarespace platform. Get started with one of Squarespace's professional website templates with designs for every category and use case, then customize your look, update content, and add features to fit your unique needs. I made my website, romanmars.com, a long time ago on Squarespace. It was simple. It was easy to do. It was exactly what I needed. Head to squarespace.com for a free trial, and when you're ready to launch, go to squarespace.com slash invisible to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. So i'm here with chris perube and chris you want to talk about one of the great time related debates
6: i do i want to talk to you today about daylight saving time
0: and so i always say daylight savings time is it not daylight savings
6: time? absolutely not that is not what i'm here to talk about no it in all the legislation that has made dst daylight saving time happen they drop the s but that's not controversy around it there's other controversies related to (laughs) daylight saving time it's something that you know people around the world kind of take for granted in large parts of north america and europe and south america and you know how daylight Mm. saving time works it's in the summer we spring forward one hour so that's actually the daylight being saved is the extra daylight in the evening when the sun sets later and then around october It falls back. So then you lose an hour and you have an earlier sunset. And it's something that I've been used to because I've had it my whole life. It's just a thing that happens twice a year. But it's actually really controversial. And there are people who are trying to change the future of daylight saving time right now. And that's what I want to talk about. But before we get to that, Roman, do you know where daylight saving time comes from?
0: I was always told that it was because of farmers, that they needed more daylight to do farming.
6: That is not at all the case. <laughs> I, much like daylight savings time, it is a myth that it's about farmers. And I know that because I called uh, this guy.
7: Uh, this is Dr. David Prero. I'm the author of the book Seize the Daylight, the curious and contentious story of daylight saving time.
6: He actually is the world expert on the subject of DST.
7: I don't like to say that, but yeah, some, some people have said that.
6: When people find out that you are a daylight saving expert, do they get mad
7: at you? Are they like, because I feel like it—it it, it is a charged
6: thing. Like people have strong opinions about it.
7: Well, what happens is when they lose an hour, the day they lose the hour of sleep, everybody gets mad at me. The day they sleep an extra hour, nobody comes and thanks me. <laughs> <laughs>
6: so when I was talking to Dr. Pereira, I brought up the farmer thing that everyone seems to think about daylight saving. And what he told me is it's a total myth.
7: Farmers. Many people think daylight saving time was put in to help the farmers, and it's the exact 100% opposite. They have to follow the sun independent of what the clock says. So you might say, so what? Let them just do it and you know, let everybody else change their clock. But the problem is that farmers have to interact with the rest of the world. They have to bring products to market. So farmers
6: have to get up with the sun and the businesses they're working with are using the clock so it's inconvenient when twice a year the clock-based businesses are shifting their time around so the headline here is farmers are not responsible for daylight saving time the credit blame belongs to a british house builder named william willett
7: and each morning he'd wake up at sunrise go out for a, a horseback ride around his uh, area and while he was on one of these morning horseback rides, he would realize that everybody else is asleep and they're not making good use of the beautiful uh, spring and summer mornings.
6: So he wrote this pamphlet called A Waste of Daylight. <laughs> he wrote this pamphlet promoting the idea of pushing back the clocks one hour in the summer, and it was really influential, and the British Parliament actually took up his idea. That's how influential his pamphlet became. Well, and did they approve it based off this pamphlet? They did not, so some politicians (laughs) argued this was a completely pointless thing. They were like, hey, if you want more daylight, why don't you just wake up earlier? Wake up earlier. Yeah, Yeah. it it seemed intuitive to them, so uh, they rejected it.
7: But Willard was not the type to be uh, dissuaded, so the next year he came back again with the same proposal and the same proposal the next year and the next year as it kept being considered but uh,
6: rejected. And this became a perennial piece of legislation. So actually, like Winston Churchill became a champion of this. He was the headline speaker at a big rally for daylight saving, but it was rejected in 1911, it was rejected in 1912, it was rejected in 1913, it was rejected in 1914, and then... In
7: 1915, unfortunately, Willett passed away, never to ever see his idea come to fruition.
6: If Willett had lived one more year he would have seen his idea implemented because in 1916, World War I was in full swing. And across all of the countries fighting in the war, there was an energy crisis because a lot of coal miners had joined the military.
0: So they wanted to save energy because there wasn't enough coal miners to actually provide the energy that they needed to run the country.
6: Exactly. And Germany were the first country to realize like, hey, one great way to save energy is to do this daylight saving thing that Britain has hmm. been considering for all these years. So Germany brings it in, and then immediately Britain becomes really jealous.
7: Within a month, after having rejected it for seven or eight years, within a month of the Germans putting it in, the British put it in, and eventually the countries put it in on both sides of the war. And that's how
6: we got daylight saving, is because of World War One. That's amazing. And also
0: keeping up with the Joneses during World War One. Which is just an amazing part of that story.
6: Yeah, it might be more accurate to say we got it because of World War One and jealousy. <laughs> Those are the, <laughs> the causes of it. And actually, at first, it was it was really complicated. It was a big problem because people kept breaking their clocks because the clocks were not built in a way that you could manually move the hour hands <laughs> back and forth. Right. But um, fast forward 100 years, and throughout the last century... Most of Europe adopted daylight saving time. It spreads to North America. Countries around the world have tried using it on and off. And what we see now is about 70 countries worldwide have daylight saving time. And even though it's common, it's still pretty controversial. Like, I grew up in Canada. I really like daylight saving time in the summer because you get that extra sunlight in the evening but I'll say during Canadian winters when daylight saving time goes away and we go back to standard time it can be brutal like there are parts of Canada where you could just get these really early sunsets
0: <laughs> well well that that part of daylight saving it's not that I have a problem with daylight saving in terms of like I think it should be there all the time you you, you mean like I don't understand why it needs to fall back I think is the thing so my my sense of the controversy is The period of time that is not daylight saving time not the part that is does that make sense
6: yeah and you're not alone in that position at all because about 10 years ago there was a political movement in the united kingdom where this whole idea comes from to take daylight saving time and push it even further oh that's exciting
0: well here's a question could this weekend be the last time we put the clocks back assuming you remember to of course well there are growing calls this lunchtime for Exactly that, saying the current system is outdated.
3: You go to work is dark, you come home is dark, hated. Perhaps we should do with an extra hour light, uh, get a lot more done when it's light, children can play out longer.
6: And it became this really popular campaign. It actually had a catchy name. The name of the campaign was Lighter Later. (laughs)
1: Lighter Later. (laughs) Joining me now at Lighter, Lighter, what Lighter Later campaign? Good morning. <laughs> lighter later campaign. This is Daniel.
6: Yeah, Paul. memorable name. Really hard to say. And actually, the lighter later campaign wasn't just about moving the clocks up one hour in the winter. That campaign actually proposed that we double daylight saving time in the summer. <laughs> You're going to have to
0: explain what that means because I have, I have a very tenuous grasp on daylight saving as it is.
6: <laughs> <laughs> so it's complicated, but please bear with me. So. Under lighter later, you'd have an extra hour of daylight in the winter. Basically, you wouldn't do the fallback. Fall back, okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then just for a treat, just for fun, let's actually give ourselves one other hour of <laughs> daylight in the summer. <laughs> so basically the clocks will move forward one hour all year round. In the winter in Great Britain, you'd be on summertime. And in the summer, you'd be on something called double summertime. So it just shifts everything. That's exactly right. And When this campaign was rolling out, they were listing all these benefits and, like, just listen to the list of benefits of double daylight saving time. It it sounds really good.
0: It's claimed the overall health of the nation would improve as people could enjoy daylight for longer. Children, they'd benefit as many of them aren't allowed to leave their homes after dark they'd be able to play outside for longer. It's estimated up to 100 road deaths could be prevented annually across Britain due to better visibility. And around 450,000
6: tons of CO2 would be saved by people switching their lights on later. It's great for the environment. It's great for safety. It's great for health. Like, what is not to love about this idea?
0: I mean, it sounds fantastic. It does, it does seem like as you begin to creep up even further, um, it'd be really dark in the morning, right? Oh, 100%.
6: (laughs) But I mean, just think about all those benefits, right? The argument they always made was like, look, yes, obviously it would be darker in the morning (laughs) than we're used to, but the benefits outweigh that one negative part of this. So in 2012, the UK parliament actually decided to take up this idea. And it felt like one of those few things that everybody could agree on. So environmentalists liked it. Business leaders liked it. Also, politically, labor politicians were in favor of it, and so were the conservatives. Actually, hmm. it was a conservative MP named Rebecca Harris who proposed launching this like pilot project for later, later. She's the one who put forward the legislation. Wow. All political persuasions enjoy the sun.
0: That's, That's the funny. idea.
6: <laughs> so Rebecca Harris puts it forward. About 120 members of parliament say they're going to support the bill polls show it's really popular it looks like it's just gonna cruise like it's gonna be a slam dunk once the legislation reaches the house and it comes up for debate in 2012 and <laughs> you're setting this up for this uh, not happening <laughs> <laughs> so what actually ended up happening is that members of rebecca harris's own party filibustered the bill oh why Roman, you may be disappointed to hear this, but it's all because of your friends in Scotland. Oh, (laughs) well, let let let, I want to I want to hear their take on it because usually me and the Scots see eye to eye on most things. (laughs) You're pretty much on the same page always. I think, yeah. Um, So, Roman, I mean, just think about where like Scotland is geographically in the UK. So, where is it? Like, if you look at a map in the UK, Scotland, north of England. Yeah. So, they have a different climate from. The legislators down in England who are putting this forward. Uh, And for them, the idea of having lighter later mostly means that they're going to have much later sunrises than everybody else. Mm -hmm. So the whole line was we're about to have another referendum on Scotland staying in the United Kingdom. Mm -hmm. And this feels like it is. Those big, bad politicians down in London making Scotland live a certain way. And, you know, this is government overreach. And it's like ammunition for these people who are campaigning for Scottish independence. So all of a sudden, there's a couple of MPs who are like, oh, well, the most important thing is we have to make sure Scotland stays in the UK. So that's how we end up seeing a couple of rogue MPs turning on this bill. Roman, have you ever heard of a guy named Jacob Rees-Mogg? No. So Jacob Rees-Mogg is a politician in the UK who is very pro-Brexit. He's a very oh, yeah. prominent yeah. person in Boris Johnson's government. He's the, the house leader. Um, but for our purposes, the reason he's important is because he is a gigantic troll. <laughs> and <laughs> Jacob Rees-Mogg came out very much against this bill. Mm-hmm.
0: the 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 problem with daylight saving bill as it's called is it doesn't save any daylight because there's only a limited amount and in the winter not a lot of it not a lot and i think changing the clocks is a basically fruitless exercise
6: so jacob rees mogg being a giant political troll decides the best thing that he can do is basically put in a poison pill amendment to try and kill this legislation Hmm. so he proposes That Somerset, the area he represents in England, should have its own time zone that is 15 minutes behind the rest of the United Kingdom. Oh, goodness. And it was this very attention-grabbing idea. Suddenly people weren't talking about daylight saving time anymore. They were talking about this idea of Somerset time. And Jacob Rees-Mogg went on the BBC to explain it and also kind of get like a light ribbing for proposing this
5: idea. Correct me if I'm wrong, but hasn't Somerset always been fifteen minutes behind the rest of us?
1: In many ways, Somerset is ahead of the rest of the country and a leader in all things. What you're trying to do is is, is sabotage the bill to move the clocks forward, correct? Basically, yes.
6: The bill comes up for debate, and they spend a lot of time talking about Scotland, a little bit of time talking about the joke idea in Somerset. But in the end, the dissident MPs are able to talk out the bill. Basically, they just debate it long enough that the clock runs out, and the bill just dies. So
0: there's really like a classic filibuster. They like ran out the clock yeah. from talking, and then exactly. the, it the died. <laughs> So there is sort of widespread support. There's some, you know, valid reasons to not because I'm 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 always on the side of Scotland to tell you the truth. <laughs> and then there's some invalid reasons to not do it, like this uh, trolley guy. So where where are we? Like, what are the options now?
6: Well, the UK isn't getting a second time zone. Like, they aren't going to give yeah. Scotland its own time zone, which could solve some of these problems. And the government has said they're not taking up the daylight saving issue anytime soon. Mm-hmm. And even if they did implement Lighter Later, there's no guarantee, even with all the support that it has, there's no guarantee that it would be popular, because there's something I have been holding back from you, Roman, and that is that the UK has actually tried this before. So during World War II, to save energy, they tried switching to double summertime. And I talked to our expert, David Prairau, about this, and he told me people just really hated the dark mornings.
7: It was considered a wartime measure by a lot of people. A lot of people, especially the rural people, who, again, still had a very large uh, political influence, a lot of them felt it was a very uh, disruptive to their situation and were willing to accept it during the war. But so, you know, once the war was over, they wanted to get rid of it right away.
6: And that's not the only experiment that hasn't worked. So the UK also tried permanent daylight saving time in the 60s. So they basically didn't change the clocks. They just Mm -hmm. had the later evenings in the winter. Mm -hmm. And people didn't like that. And they switched back. And here's the wild thing. The United States tried it during the (laughs) energy crisis in the 70s. I had no idea. (laughs) And people didn't like that either. And every time this happens, despite all the benefits, despite saving energy and being better for exercise and saving lives, the dark mornings are the thing that people always complain about. It's really
0: interesting that everyone thinks that they want this new thing, and when they get it, they really hate
6: it. Yeah, and people keep thinking that they'll figure out the best way to fiddle with daylight saving, and we have these examples in the United States and the United Kingdom where you know, we've tried something else, we've tried the later evenings, and then gone back to the system that we already have. Right, oh right, oh my goodness. And David prayer our expert, he thinks the system we have now is pretty good, and he gets why people keep messing with it, but basically all he wants is that people look at history and have a better debate about it.
7: At this point, I have sort of a mission to at least try to get states uh, and the federal government, if they're talking about making changes, make change based on uh, facts and reality and history and not just on uh, surface knowledge. And if they do that, that that's fine with me because I don't mind uh, whatever they choose as long as they choose uh, after having considered all the options.
0: (laughs) I like him. (laughs) He's like (laughs) from the 99PI school (laughs) of design. Think about what you're doing. Listen to history. Know that it can be changed. It's, uh, everything's in a continuum. But you just have to think about it. Don't just react. That's, um, that's so good.
6: Thank you, Chris. Thanks, Robin.
0: 99% Invisible was produced this week by Kurt Colstead, Joe Rosenberg, Vivian Lay, and Chris Berube. Music by our director of sound, Sean Rial. Mixed by Carolina Rodriguez. Delaney Hall is the executive producer. The rest of the team is Christopher Johnson, Lashima Dawn, Katie Mingle, Emmett Fitzgerald, Sophia Klatsker, and me, Roman Mars. We are a part of the Stitcher and SiriusXM podcast family, now headquartered six blocks north in the Pandora building in beautiful uptown Oakland, California. You can find the show and join discussions about the show on Facebook. You can tweet me at Roman Mars and the show at 99pi.org. We're on Instagram and Reddit too. You can find other shows I love from Stitcher on our website, 99pi.org, including Conan O'Brien Needs a Friend. If you listen to the episode with Will Arnett, you will hear them make fun of 99% Invisible. But if you want to listen to or read a bunch more stories about design, look no further than 99pi.org. Hello. E- hello. It's Detro clock.
2: It's time to go to the Sirius XM factory.